Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. And I'm Freddie. And I'm Ben. And this is the New Statesman's twice-weekly politics podcast. In this episode, we'll be looking ahead to the local elections in England and you ask our Scotland editor what's going on with the SNP. The Dominic Raab report came out after recording, but we'll be talking all about it at our live podcast recording at the Cambridge Literary Festival on Saturday. So come along to that or you can listen to it on Monday. On 4th of May, it's the local elections in England and we have Ben Walker, our elections expert, here with us to discuss what we'll be looking out for. And we should say that there are also local elections in Northern Ireland on the 18th of May, but we'll be discussing those results in a separate episode. So we're just talking about England today. More than 8,000 council seats across England are up for grabs. Most of these were last up for election in May 2019, which was quite a different time. Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party. Theresa May was just about still leader of the Conservatives and Prime Minister. This was shortly before she announced her resignation. And it was the Lib Dems who made the biggest gains in that election, if we look back to it. So it's quite a different political era. So a lot could change. There could have been a lot of churn in these seats. The Tories are defending 83 councils, while Labour will be trying to gain on the 49 councils they hold in these elections. So, Ben, I mean, you've done a really good look ahead on State of the Nation, which is our sister website all about elections and what's going on in the UK numbers-wise, which all of our listeners should go and check out if they haven't seen it. What kind of council seats in England are up for election this time round, Ben? So this year's local elections will represent Rishi Sunak's first and probably last electoral test before the next general election, the most major one. It's it's where home counties England comes up for grabs for the first time since 2019. And also, although we've been having it every year, urban England in Labour's traditional battlegrounds are going up once more. And you do have Stoke-on-Trent up, you have Lincoln up, you have the Lincolnshire coast, you know, what what used to be a hotbed for UKIP, that's coming up again. And let's have a look if Reform UK do any well there. No, it's going to be absolutely fascinating, which is what I say every year. The thing with local elections is when they were last held. And as you said at the start, these were last held in 2019, which is when Labour and the Tories were pretty much neck and neck in the polls. But they were collapsing. They were in a state of free fall. It was the Brexit had been delayed. We were on course for a Euro election. The Brexit party was surging. So were the Lib Dems and the local elections. The Lib Dems did rather well. And Labour and the Tories just, their gains and losses cancelled each other out. So 
now we have Labour ahead by 15 to 20 points, depending on which policy you look at. You should expect to see some big Labour gains. However, local elections can be dramatic. You could have one year where Labour's ahead by two points, and the next year the Tories are ahead by two points. But if you had the same councils, it could swing from a Labour lead of five points to a Tory lead of 25 points. This is the thing with local councils. They can be absolutely dramatic, even more so than what the national numbers imply. And let's not forget, local issues do have a part to play. The local elections tend to benefit the Conservatives a little bit more than the national polls would imply, although not by much. If you want to talk about personal votes, they do tend to exist more in council elections than in general because the turnout is so low. We should expect turnout to be around, you know, in every other council seat, an average between 25 to 40%. That's low. That's low stuff. How many, how many of people know that there's a council election happening in the area? How many people know that in some seats you have more than one vote to cast. Not many people know that. And of course, voter ID will play a prominent role. I've actually been signing people up for a voter authority certificate because they don't know how to do it. And there are extra complications this year. One, because of what we're comparing against, the middle of the Brexit wars. And two, we have voter ID in the mix. So what general trends will we all be looking out for? I'm interested. So Ben, I mean, you suggested that Labour needs to show that it can win both in its heartlands, but also in sort of suburbia and commuterville. And you listed some of those places, Swindon, Stevenage, Rugby, in your piece. Are there any other trends that you'll be looking out for? Um, Oh, goodness me. If you want to talk about the Labour and the Tories, we've had a big change since 2019, haven't we? Labour, since 2019, lost a big chunk of its Leave voting base. Some of it went to the Tories, a lot of it stayed at home. We want to see whether they're coming back out for Labour again. We don't know if they will. Uh, The polls show most of them have, but not as many as 2019. And I make this point. You are comparing against 2019 when the voter coalitions were different. And just to use some examples for you, in Burnley and Hindburn, which is the these North Lancashire towns just north of Greater Manchester, it is not impossible to imagine that Labour could still lose some seats because their Leave voting coalition has changed. It's smaller, even though overall they're bigger because there are fewer Leave voters amongst the Labour mix than, say, in 2017, if, even though nationally Labour are about the same numbers. So keep an eye on certain Leave voting boroughs. Is Labour making enough gains or holding on to the seats they won in 2019. Blackpool be one such case. Right now, Labour runs Blackpool Council, but maybe they might suffer some losses because there are fewer Leave voters voting for Labour than there were in 2017 through to 19. Okay, we are still seeing some changes. So in terms of the Labour Tory Mm -hmm. fights, Leave voting boroughs, absolutely. Suburbia is key. Now, the expectations for Labour are so low sometimes because we're talking about Blackpool. We're talking about Burnley. We're talking about Sunderland. And to be honest, these should be safe as houses for Labour, but they're not. Or rather, we've seen Labour suffer so badly, we shouldn't be talking about them, we should be talking about other places. 2010 was the year when David Cameron ended the years of new Labour by winning the two Swindon seats, parliamentary constituencies, the outskirts of Bristol, Gloucester, Milton Keynes. And now we need to see Labour winning back in places like that. So Swindon, Milton Keynes, Stevenage, Rugby, and Filton and Bradley Stoke. Kingswood in South Gloucestershire. These are the places where Labour needs to be making gains. Also keep an eye out closer to London in Dartford, Gravesend, Chatham. This used to be voting Labour in under New Labour, under Tony Blair. And right now it's as barren as can be for Labour seats. We need to be seeing some absolutely, I don't want to say phenomenal gains, but we need to be seeing some 
progress there. Even on the Isle of Thanet, also in Kent, where Nigel Farage made his last known attempt at uh, trying to gain parliamentary representation. This is a place that w- w- at one point was voting Labour, and we do need to be seeing gains there, particularly in Ramsgate and Margate. And whether that happens or not is yet to be seen. So that's the Labour and Tory effects. A lot of the Tories on the back foot, some potential Tory gains in the north because leave voters have moved around. Lib Dems, oh my God, they had a really good year in 2019, but they could gain some more seats. I was speaking to a Lib Dem councillor in Berkshire, I believe, but and I was asking, like, how many gains do you expect to win? And they say, oh, every journalist asked me this. And, I, and when I say, oh, we're only going to make two gains, they go, we're a bit disappointed. But that's the thing. They are coming from a high point from 2019. If they hold on to these... That shows they perhaps have potential parliamentary future because they are not just a flash in the pan as 2019 was, as in the 2019 locals were. They are they have a foundation for some really big future gains. So they've got to be holding in Surrey, in Oxfordshire, in Hertfordshire. We've got to see some gains in Tiverton and because if they don't make any gains there, they're losing that parliamentary seat next year. Interesting. Thanks so much for giving us the lay of the land, Ben. Freddie and Rachel, I'd be interested in hearing what you'll be looking out for. I'm going to be watching Teesside and Surrey, basically. What interests me about local elections is the narrative that comes out of them. And this will be the narrative that we'll have all the way up to the election, because it's in all likelihood be the last electoral test. Surrey has big cabinet ministers, Michael Gove, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt. He's also a cabinet minister there. Just how much of a threat they're going to face and because they're big personalities. And Dominic Raab, who is still a Dominic cabinet Raab. minister at, <laughs> yeah. at the time of recording. At the time of recording, yeah. <laughs> Potentially not next week. And Teesside, some of the factors there is a high number of independents. And I think when you look at the polls and there's this high proportion of don't knows, you wonder if there's any kind of translation in how people will vote at the local elections there. Because I just think if that's going to continue as a tension, that will inform how we talk about the election going forward and whether these people are shy Tories or if they're going to go to a smaller party or... Stay or, or stay at home yeah so I'll be looking at that really interesting yeah. okay Freddie yeah just on two side and there's places in the northeast I'll be interested to get your take on this as well Ben do you think there's a big incumbency effect as well because we are a few years down a slight realignment in local elections I was speaking to some Lib Dem sources as well and they were basically saying that the fact that they did quite well in 2019 is bleeding through now they have the infrastructure on the ground they have the councillors there the activists as soon as you get some momentum you it can change your fortunes going forward just on Teesside we've been in the northeast and elsewhere we've got Ben Houchin doing a lot of work there he's very popular locally there's you, such a high number of like ministerial visits to Teesside as well when you know my contacts back home they're like yeah visiting a business every few weeks you know throughout the year so they've really yeah you're right there's a big yeah. ground campaign and you can feel that Westminster spotlight it, it mm. does change the way that people think so it'd be great to get your view on that Ben and then also just on the Lib Dems it's yeah fascinating so remember we did the Lib Dem episode I think a, a couple of months ago and looking at where they're focusing on now is many of these com- commuter belt regions South Manchester places like that where you've got some wealthier areas like Bramall and Hale around Stockport and then also in Cambridge Cambridgeshire, I think there's only it's only East Cambridgeshire council up for election, but places in Oxfordshire they think that they can finally take 
Oxford share in totality from the Tories. So that's quite exciting for them. So, yeah, there's lots going on. I think it's really interesting. Just watching, I mean, as Ben said, and as Rachel alluded to, the local elections are super interesting because it forces you to cast your mind back to where we were four years ago. Absolutely, yeah. One of the interesting things about 2019 was that the Brexit party was gearing up. It was ready to go. You had this complete debacle and chaos in the Tory party in Parliament as the Brexit wars were coming through. We had Jeremy Corbyn leading the Labour Party. The Brexit party didn't actually stand in those elections. Yeah, so we exactly. didn't fully yeah. see the effect of their mobilisation of voters. And then we did see it in the European elections, I think later that month, or if not the month after. So we are going to see a different dynamic this time. Reform UK are also prepping for a big campaign. I was up in Derby at the weekend at their rally, which um, Labour lost back in 2019. I think seeing that dynamic play out as well will be really interesting. We should mention every time the local elections come up just how well the Greens are expected to do and continue to do. I think they're about to take one of the councils in the south as well. They're likely to take control of it. So it's that's just an interesting thing to watch as well, whether we continue to feed the Greens into the overall narrative. Yeah. On that, if yeah. I can just add, one of the councils they are expecting to probably take is a part of the world which you probably can't necessarily point to on a map. It's mid-Suffolk. It's countryside Suffolk. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They were winning a lot of these seats with 80% against 20% for... The- sometimes as many as 70%, 60%, whatever. And little villages that had been voting Conservative for God knows how long. The Lib Dems never really had a bit of a presence here. And then the Greens just swan in and act as an opposition and they win these Tory voters. This is the thing with the Green Party and its voters in local elections. Every stereotype, every the archetypal Green voter you have, throw it out the window. It's completely wrong in local elections because the people they pull to vote for them is so broad because they are winning in mid-Suffolk. They are winning seats on the Wirral, my, my bordering borough here. And of course, they're winning in Brighton. Though I take, I take this point that Labour are so bullish in Brighton now, they're winning a lot of those affluent Tory voters that they probably will become the largest party in Brighton. Labour will. And the Greens will be relegated from currently running the council to second place opposition. So they may lose Brighton but gain Suffolk, which doesn't fall in. Area. What a journey. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> this is the evolution of the Green Party. They have such local success. And we said it in a podcast a while back is the minute they go on the national scene in mm. politics is the minute they got to define themselves. And it's the minute these types of local election successes become a bit more, I don't want to say narrow, but a bit more defined. Their voters become defined. That's when they join the Westminster scene. And one of the most important things that happens around local elections is the narrative that each of the parties try and impose and also the vulnerabilities to their narrative if the results don't go their way. You've already had Greg Hans, who's the Tory party chairman, out on the airwaves saying he's doing the usual managing of expectations and saying that the Tories could lose a thousand seats. Why do they do this? And what are the real risks to the Conservatives from these local election results? Is it this idea that... Rishi Sunak actually isn't as popular in the blue wall as his reputation suggests. It's interesting, isn't it? Because in America, they'll always say, oh, no, we're on to win. Welcome to uh, the next president of the United States and what have you in the UK. It's much more, oh, no, we're going to have an awful night and uh, let's wait and see. (laughs) Well, they basically do that so that afterwards, when we're all picking apart the results, we basically say, oh, they did better than expected. And that reflects well on Rishi Sunak or whoever the leader is. It's interesting when we think about the campaign so far. I think Labour have had a much more concerted, tight, coherent local election campaign. We saw, we've spoken about that months ago, and they're focused on crime, their local issues, the sewage and others. Th- these things have been coming up, whereas Rishi Sunak has been 
completely preoccupied by meeting the US President Joe Biden, the Windsor framework negotiating with the EU. There has been a slight different a different emphasis from both parties, I think, on these elections in part just because obviously the opposition has more time to focus on uh, elections and rather than governing. But on the narrative as well, I'm just thinking about back to a few months ago as well, and we were holding up the local elections as a big electoral test of Rishi Sunak's support within the party when he was doing really badly and his polling was very bad and you were getting Tory MPs whisper the disgruntlement around Westminster. The local elections were seen as a totemic issue that could potentially bring him down. I don't think we're there anymore. Sunak's grip on the party is much tighter than it was and his authority is increased. But these things, they are a big test for politicians, particularly for parties like the Conservative Party, which is so focused on winning elections. They also do this to improve turnout amongst their own supporters who who are not terribly motivated a lot of time to right. go out and vote in town hall elections because they're just not, it's not one of the elections they get as engaged in really. So it's about getting Conservative supporters who are not very happy with Rishi Sunak and how the last couple of years have gone to make them think, oh God, we're going to lose. God knows how many councils better go out and vote Tory. Okay. And so for the Conservatives, they'll be looking at Sunak's appeal, not only in the Red Wall, as we were talking about all of those visits to council areas in Teesside, for example, but also perhaps in some of these places where the Lib Dems are more of a threat. And we've talked about the home council and the shires. What about Starmer? What will he hope to achieve from these elections? And where could there possibly be vulnerabilities if he doesn't win the kind of places that the party needs him to win in order to get that parliamentary majority that Ben was talking about? Yeah, I think Ben touched on a lot of the areas that they're very focused on. They have not said anything about expectation management at all. No, they haven't. And and I can't get anyone to. So I think they're not quite sure yet where to set the bar, which Mm -hmm. would tell you that... Yeah, they're having a bit of a sort of panicky run up to the local elections, I think, because it's these are very important. They have to have a they have to come out of it looking like they're likely to be the next government, that they're on the road to success. So, yeah, they're not sure where to place themselves at the minute or where they want to be seen just yet. Yeah, apart from in Scotland. <laughs> apart from in Scotland. Scotland, right. Scotland a lot, which is kind of ironic because none of the seats in Scotland are up for grabs in these locals. Yeah, yeah. just on post-election narrative management, one of the interesting things is that people always look at councillor seats, which are important, but the key things to remember when we're trying to do this and then trying to transplant that result onto a general election is that there are completely different numbers of voters for different councillors. So it's not very comparable. That's why you'll get the BBC and others and creating a thing called a national equivalent vote. So they try and basically extrapolate from the local elections and try and make it seem as if if it was a national election, because obviously as Ben set out, not all of the councils are up for election, what would the result be? So that's one of the key things to look out for as well. Yeah. Ben, Ben, how much can we extrapolate from whatever the results of these local elections are onto the national picture? Or is it more of a guide to each of the parties on where they're going wrong and where their opportunities are? Both, really. You can extrapolate a fair bit. I take, I always take issue with a national equivalent vote. No disrespect to the hard work that the BBC and the civologists do, but I don't think it's often as helpful and I'll, I'll probably... I don't think this is the place to explain in greater detail, but anyway, it's I, I, it's a lot more complex. This is just a complex thing to do sometimes. Now. It's very annoying if you want an easy narrative because sometimes on the night you may notice that last year... The, this was Boris Johnson's last local elections and the way the media coverage jumped from it is just it's okay in the red wall even though Labour run would have hypothetically won most of those red wall seats it was bad coverage basically sometimes these local elections get covered really badly no and as Freddie says some boroughs you have 10,000 votes cast for 20 seats and then in in Liverpool you have 20 seats with 100,000 votes cast this is a complex very annoying thing how much can we read into this i always take the view of this that is in 2014 the 2014 local elections right before the general election of 2015 
if we paid a lot of attention to what was happening every seat, I think we would have noticed a few things. Because in 2014, you had the UKIP surge, of course. It happened close to, the, close to not on the day of, close to the Euro elections. And you had UKIP doing really well in Thurrock, in Basildon, in the Essex, the, the Thames estuary, basically. But you also had the Tories holding on the outskirts of Leeds in Pudsey, in Keighley, in Calder Valley. In, in Kirklees and so on and so forth, which they're not doing now. And if you paid attention to all of that, you would have been able to say Labour in 2014 wasn't doing well in the marginals that matters. They weren't doing well in the marginals at all. They were sweeping, they were cleaning up all those Lib Dem seats that the Lib Dems had won in Hull and Stockport and bits of Leeds and elsewhere, but they weren't doing in the marginals that matter. This is the thing with local elections. You've got to just, uh, how about this? Go to State of the Nation at newstatesman.com. Go, yes. go there, go there. And, uh, I knew we were the, warming up to that. Yeah. <laughs> and on the results night for May, we'll be having a ward, be, ward by ward map that I want you to look at. I want you to go to the marginals, you know, what you think are marginal constituencies. Go to Swindon. Are Labour gaining seats there? Go to Milton Keynes. Labour are winning seats, but are they gaining them off the toys? Check all that. If they are, they are leading in the marginals that matter, the marginals that will get them back to government. If they are not, if they are still struggling in Stoke-on-Trent, which they presently are because there's a strong independent battalion of councillors there who try and carve out this third way, even though it's a third way with the Tories, just there will be trouble. But look at the ward-by-ward results. I think, no disrespect to our media colleagues, just it's too simplistic sometimes, the coverage, and we do suffer as a consequence. <laughs> I think that's a good plug to end on. Thanks so much, Ben. Yes, and State of the Nation, you can find... What's the URL? Oh, sotn.newstatesman.com. There we go. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. <laughs> After the break, we'll be speaking to our Scotland editor, Chris Deering, about what's going on in the SNP. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12 if you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth. Featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Chris. 
Yes, so we are joined by Chris Deeran, our Scotland editor, who's very kindly dialing in from a cafe to explain the background noise. So if the sound isn't as clear as usual, that's why. But we forgive him because it's a very hectic time to be a political journalist in Scotland at the moment. We know you've got a lot on. And just to explain, Freddie's gone off to go and have a look at this Dominic Raab story that's just breaking now, which is why he hasn't stuck around. So Chris, I'm just filling in our listeners who may not have been following all the twists and turns. Two major figures in the SNP have been arrested this month. First, Peter Murrell, the party's former chief executive and Nicola Sturgeon's husband. And earlier this week, Colin Beatty, the treasurer, both were released pending further investigation. So we have to be a little bit careful about what we say while we discuss this. But what we can say is that the police are looking into how more than £600,000 of donor money in Intended to fund a future independence referendum campaign has been spent by the SNP. And on top of all of this, a luxury motorhome was seized by police officers from outside Sturgeon's mother-in-law's house the day that Murrell was arrested. So, Chris, first of all, tell us a little bit about what the mood is like on the Scottish political scene, particularly among the SNP figures that you're speaking to. Obviously, it depends which party you're a member of. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the mood is wildly different depending on your loyalty. But obviously, the SNP is the right place to start. I think it's fair to say that there is a huge amount of shock across the party generally at the scale of what they're seeing and I guess the drama of the police intervention, the arrest of Peter Murrell and the tent that we saw in Nicholas Sturgeon in Peter Murrell's front garden was obviously a big moment, it was on all the front pages, all the news bulletins and then obviously as you said this week we've had Colin Beatty being arrested as well. Now the third person who whose name is on the SNP accounts is that Nicholas Sturgeon. So there is the possibility and there is some speculation now that uh, she may be approached by the police in the not too distant future to answer some questions as well. We don't know whether that will happen, but uh, it certainly seems to be on the cards and would almost be a logical next step. So it's uh, what we're basically seeing is the people who have dominated Scottish politics for the last Nicola Sturgeon really since the beginning of devolution in one form or another and certainly in the last eight years as First Minister and her husband who was running the SNP, their reputations are obviously taking a bit of a hit at the moment. We'll see whether it leads to anything more dramatic, but it's definitely true that we thought of them and probably what they expected from their post-office careers are no longer what we might have thought a couple of months ago. So the people in the SNP are, as I said, shocked. They are quite disheartened by it. I think there is quite a bit of regret that Hamza Youssef won the leadership election because he obviously ran as the continuity candidate, uh, promising more of the kind of Sturgeon policies. His cabinet is largely made up of friends of Nicholas Sturgeon and people who believe in the Sturgeon agenda. He has already said he's going to challenge the British government in court over the Section 35 order to block the gender law that Sturgeon wanted to pass, which was a quite an unpopular law with the Scottish public. So that's going to reopen a bit of an old wound. And he attempted to make his big debut policy speech earlier this week. And it just so happened that a few hours before he got to his feet in Holyrood, Colin Beatty was arrested, which rather overshadowed that. So the mood is, what the hell is coming next? Where does this leave us? How on earth are we going to go into next year's general election and indeed the Holyrood election in 2026 with any chance of winning or maintaining perhaps even a lead? I think there's a, a sense that things are moving very quickly now. 
question might be if the air is coming out of the SNP, is it like a slow puncture or is it like the air coming out of a balloon blowing all over the place? We don't know that yet, but the polls suggest that support for the SNP is falling. So we'll be watching all of that with great interest over the coming weeks and months. Can I ask a mischievous question, Chris? How upset is Kate Forbes really? <laughs> it strikes me that she this kind of opens up the leadership for her potentially sooner than she might have thought if one side of the SNP is very connected to Sturgeon and those people are very connected to Humza. Yeah, I guess politically it leaves Kate Forbes in almost the ideal position. She came very close to winning despite all of the efforts that were put into stopping her by Team Sturgeon if you like, the SNP machine was very much behind Hamza Yusuf. She challenged quite publicly the performance of the Sturgeon government, described it as mediocre and uh, promised real change. I, I think had she won the day of the announcement, it would have felt very different, a leadership announcement. I think it would have felt something like a new start. She'd obviously been in a stronger position to distance herself from the outgoing leadership and maybe the, the events are so traumatic at the moment that obviously the SNP would be suffering anyway. But I think if they had Kate Forbes as a new broom, they might be better placed to, to ride it out in a stronger position. But nevertheless, she's on the back benches. She's begun a column in the national newspaper, which is setting out her thinking on the economy. There are a few other people in the back benches with her who are determined to almost act as a separate brain for the SNP in policy terms to set out maybe the agenda that, that Kate Forbes was pursuing in her leadership campaign. The question is whether Hamza Youssef can survive particularly long period as first minister and leader of the party if he is so closely associated with the outgoing ad administration whether the SNP will decide they need to get a change if they do particularly badly in next year's general election will they think they made the wrong choice and want a change Kate Forbes is in a strong position now she's not close to the things that are going on she's not tarnished by them and she can afford to almost sit back and wait and see what happens next I would have thought it would be difficult for the SNP to change leader after a Westminster election. I would have thought if they were going to change it would be after the next Scottish Parliament election, unless you think there's something else that happens in between then and now that kind of ends it for Humza. I know it's early to talk about that, but I'm interested. Yeah, the SNP have traditionally been very loyal to their leaders. They haven't had all that many leaders over the course of their existence. And Salmond was leader for, I think, something like, must have been about... So it'll be two decades or something like that, and Sturgeon was leader for eight years. So they don't change leaders regularly or easily, but we are in uncharted territory now. The last two first ministers of the SNP, the only two first ministers of the SNP, have found themselves at the centre of police investigations, and this one looks like it could be quite substantial impact. Depending on what happens, they've been in power now for 16 years. They are a different beast to what they used to be. They're used to running the government, they're used to being well ahead in the polls, they are used to independence being by nearly half the population. They have a swagger about them. They have an expectation that they are Scotland's party and that they have an entitlement to rule. So it may be that if they start to take a dive that they begin to behave a bit more like the other parties, which is a shot at an election. And if it goes very badly wrong, then there's the need for a change. We haven't been in this situation before, so I'm not saying that would definitely happen. You may be right, they'd give Hamza Youssef until the Holyrood election. But if next year goes particularly badly wrong and if the polls suggest that, that the Holyrood election is looking as if Labour are going to end up the largest party or the SNP are just going to lose far too many seats. It's not unthinkable that, uh, that there could be a change before that. 
And did you mention that it was Yusuf's speech to the Scottish Parliament on the day that Beattie was arrested? Did you learn anything from his speech? It was supposed to be a bit of a reset. Obviously, it was overshadowed. But was there anything that stuck out to you from what he said? The reset largely came in terms of things he's not going to do that Nicola Sturgeon was going to do. And to be honest, the things he's not going to do were so blindingly obvious there was very little surprise. For example, the bottle return scheme that the Greens have been pushing, which has caused all sorts of problems for businesses in Scotland and mm. relations with business, has been delayed for the best part of a year. They're looking at various other things, the national care system, which Sturgeon was very keen to set up and make part of her legacy, but it was rushed through without really a proper financial analysis of how much it would cost. There was suggestion that they were going to strip local government of their role in delivering care systems, so the trade unions weren't very happy about that. Local government wasn't very happy about that. It's going back to the drawing board and a few other things as well. So I think the meat of it was really here are the things that were going to happen that are no longer going to happen or that we're going to take a, another look at. The rest of it, I think it was pretty much progressive politics by numbers. We will spend more money on this good deed, we'll spend more money on that good deed, very much what the SNP tends to do. There was some rhetoric about changing the relationship with business, which has been very poor for years now. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really much about how that would be done and what would change in terms of the policy around business, whether there would be much of a drive for economic growth what talk about the well-being economy well how do you fund that well-being economy it's there's no magic money tree so you need business to be employing people and paying their taxes and uh, at that point you can invest properly in public services but i don't think that's necessarily hamza yusuf's main interest or strong point it's something that kate forbes is much more interested in so there's a bit of blather about that i don't think we're really much clearer about what he's actually going to do about it they want to do lots of stuff Largely, it involves spending money that they don't have, so they're going to have to take money from other budgets if they do that. But as you say, the whole thing was overshadowed and will be overshadowed for some time by the police investigation. You wouldn't want to be Hamza Yusuf. It's possible to feel a bit sorry for him mm. if you're that way-minded in that the, the entire first sort of few weeks of his leadership been completely overshadowed and will be completely overshadowed. And he had a lot of work to do anyway, given his lack of public popularity, given how close the leadership election was in the end. And he hasn't really been given the space to to address those concerns uh, because of mm. everything else that's going on. Then again, there have been questions about the SNP's finances for a while, so there may be a bit of complacency or even arrogance about anointing this continuity candidate who may have ended up being caught up in it. Could have been something that they, may, they might have anticipated. And we don't know. Again, we're all looking back now at Nicola Sturgeon's resignation speech when she said she felt she couldn't give the job 100% anymore, that people had made up their minds about her so she couldn't persuade more people to vote for independence. And I was one of those people, because I, I th thought quite highly of Nicola Sturgeon as a, a person, I thought she was a person of integrity. I was kind of willing to accept her word for it. But you look at all of this now and, and you wonder what was known then uh, and the impact that might have had on the decisions that were taken. Chris, we'll leave you to the cafe and all of the things you have to write this week. We will catch up with you soon when there's more developments. Thanks so much. Nice to speak to you. You too. Thanks. We'll be back on Monday with a special live edition of the podcast from the Cambridge Literary Festival. And if you like to, you can come along and watch us live. I'll be there with Freddie and Ben on Saturday, the 22nd of April at 6pm, where you can put your most pressing questions to us in person. Tickets are available at cambridgeliteraryfestival.com where you'll also find details of other New Statesman events, including our debate on the future of the monarchy, featuring Andrew Marr and Gary Young, and a breakfast briefing with our editor-in-chief, Jason Cowley. New Statesman readers get 20% off tickets with the code NSSPRING23. 
Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Rachel Wearmouth, Freddie Hayward, Ben Walker and Chris Deering. We're produced by May Robson. 